Our gracious Lord, we do give you thanks for this time this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to come before your word and to um, just contemplate the revelation that you have given us. I pray that we would uh, just glean richly from this, Lord. We thank you for all that you have given us. I pray that, that we would drink fully from it. And we pray that as we uh, consider what it means to uh, remember our leaders, what it means that we have an altar and that we have a true atoning sacrifice, Lord, I pray that you would just bury these truths deep in our heart, Lord, and that they would take root and that they would grow into our life. And we thank you again for all you do. We thank you for this time together in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I'm continuing in the book of Hebrews. Chapter 13, starting in verse 7. But before I go there, go ahead and turn there. I just want to ask the question, what are the idols, what are the idols that have captured the American imagination? What are those things that we look at culture as idolizing? And what are those things that we ourselves, coming out of American culture idolized before we found the true and living God. Yes. Well, and I would say I struggle with this to a certain extent even now with sometimes the amount of time I put into it. Mm-hmm. But it's going to be a big shock to everybody who is bored. Yeah. Bored. Absolutely. What, what do you think it is about sports that has so captured the American mind? Is it just the fact that some guy can throw a inflated pigskin 70 yards? I mean, what what is it about sports? I think that oh. it's... Oh, he pointed here. Wow. Do you want to go? No. <laughs> I, mean, I, mean, I think he was pointing to Chrissy. So. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say that... Um, you must be blind. <laughs> 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 but what is it about sports? So there, there is part of the physical feat, but what is it about sports that has so grasped the American imagination? There, I think that it, it feeds into the need of man to be tribal. There's something about it that makes you feel like you're a part of a larger community mm. without any kind of church, anything. Many families are broken, so there's some sort of tribe, family togetherness that it provides. Yeah, it provides connection to others. So on that too, just that... Uh, basic kind of hardwiring level like men are created to conquer things and our culture is one where men are given less and less to conquer so they live vicariously through others that are conquering in front of them and share their success. Yeah, when you see the perversion of it in that they're conquering something that literally means nothing, right? At the end of the day, what is a Super Bowl trophy? It's a, well, yeah. Talk to me in a thousand years, and we'll see if we have the same opinion. Um, whereas a thousand years ago, they built Notre Dame Cathedral, and we're still talking about that today. So, what again, what are the idols? We've talked about sports, the, the sort of allure of glory, the connection to people that these things bring. Wally? I would say money, fame, and power. Money, fame, and power, yeah, I think... That's a lot. I think I would add one more to that list, but yes. I think in today's society, like electronics, technology. Yeah. Again, why? I think it's, it's to strive after something new and to almost, it seems like, to be, to be up, on, up on another person. Yeah. The you have al- one more thing than someone else. Yep, the allure of novelty, one-upmanship. 
Pat? I think it was Luther that said, I have within me the great Pope self. Mm. I am my greatest idol. That's right. And that's, I think, the thing that all of these center around, is that fundamentally, apart from Christ, humanity's bent is inward, that we worship ourselves. All of these other things, in a sense, just become sacraments to the altar of me. So, in sports, I watch people do things that I'll never be able to do. I live vicariously through that with this sort of imagination of my own grandeur. All of these things lift us to that plane. We're dealing with a very different context in the book of Hebrews. What was the fundamental struggle of idolatry that the Hebrews were dealing with? Old Testament, Old Covenant. Old Testament, Old Covenant, yes. But why, why was that a struggle? I mean, are any of us tempted to move to Jerusalem and live the Jewish life? No. So why, why would this have been a temptation for these Hebrews, brother? Well, the, the cultural identity of a Jewish Christian just doesn't disappear when they become Christian. That's right. That's right. And you have to think about all of the promises and all of the weight invested in all of the Jewish tradition that was coming to the, the New Testament Jewish Christian. They had lived under the Mosaic Covenant believing that the Levitical priesthood forever will, or for instance, will last forever. They believed that circumcision would continue forever. They believed that not a jot or a tittle of the law would pass out of existence. Now we have Christ saying, ah, you can eat pork if you want to. You no longer need to circumcise your children. You, you don't have to do these things that were commanded and binding. No longer must you offer sacrifices in the temple for sin. You don't have to do these things. But you could feel in the same way that we feel as Christians. We have come to follow Christ. We've walked the road of discipleship. And yet we still feel the pull to those idols that we held in esteem before we came to know Christ. I'm not tempted to be a Jew, but I am tempted to work for fame and money and success. I'm not tempted to, to offer a goat at an altar to a, with, through a Levitical priest, but there are many other things that tempt me from the road to discipleship. And so for us to, to work through the book of Hebrews, we have to try and contextualize these things. Um, because the same temptations the Hebrews were dealing with are not what we're dealing with, but the same fundamental bent of human nature, that's what we're dealing with. I think our idols become incorporated into our, church, our Christian goal. Mm-hmm. Because success, I mean, success is still viewed as a, uh, a, a good thing or uh, something to try to achieve within the church. That's right. You know, numbers, uh, size, uh, whatever it is that people look, look at and consider what a church should be, yeah. those idols that we formerly had, or we think we formerly had, but we probably still do, are twisted into that too. That's right. That's right. Everything all kind of gets bound up. In the same way, you have these Hebrews tempted to Judaism. You had the Judaizers saying, yes, Jesus, but also circumcision. So we're going to blend these things together. Christ says, you will have one Lord, one Master. You cannot serve two. So as we approach this, we just want to keep these things in mind. Um, we're going to be working uh, Hebrews 13, 7 through 16. Um, does someone want to just read that passage for us? We'll just start by reading the whole thing. Uh, remember those who led you 
who spoke the word of God to you and considering the result of their conduct, conduct imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today, yes, and forever. Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, through which those who were thus occupied were not benefited. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burnt outside the camp. Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Hence, let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of his, of lips that give thanks to his name. And do not neglect doing good and sharing for which which uh, sacrifices of God is pleased. Amen. Verse 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. The call to remembrance, the call to think about, the call to consider the lives, the faith of those who came before. The author of the Hebrews has already given precedent for us in Hebrews chapter 11. In Hebrews chapter 11, he offers us the historical testimony of those giants of the Old Testament who believed the Word of God and who lived in accordance with their faith. In giving Hebrews 11, <clears throat> he is both showing that this Old Testament religion that is now tempting the Jews is not really what Abraham believed. Mm -hmm. Abraham believed the Old Testament. Abraham walked in accordance with the Old Testament, but he was not looking to the Levitical priesthood for salvation. He was looking to the promise of God for salvation, which has come in Jesus Christ. So all of the Old Testament was built as a prophetic testimony to Jesus. And the demonstration here is that the, the Pharisees, who would be contemporary with these Hebrews, the Pharisees are not the true inheritors of the Old Testament faith. The, the Pharisees are not true sons of Abraham, but those who are trusting in Christ are the true sons of Abraham. So that for you to return to the Old Testament is not for you to return to any sort of covenant that would be recognizable, but is for you to return to the shadow. And so he's pointing to Hebrews 11 and to this witness to say, don't follow the Pharisees because they're not following these men. These men were ultimately looking forward to Christ who has come, so look to Christ. But in so doing, he is also calling to remembrance their faith. What are some of the things that, that he speaks of in Hebrews 11 that, that was done by the motivation of faith through these faithful individuals coming before. They passed through the Red Sea. Passed through the Red Sea. That's right. That's a, I mean, standing at the Red Sea, take a step, and the water's open. Yes. Sarah believed that she would conceive. Sarah believed that she would conceive. Amen. So you have Abraham considering the feebleness of his own body, the, the barrenness of his own flesh, and the the proven and continued barrenness of Sarah's womb, and you wonder how can two figuratively dead objects create life? How can that be? 
the work of God. That's it. That's the only thing that can bring life out of that situation. Consider the outcome of their faith. Consider their reception of the promises that they were given. Abraham did not receive the land, but it says that Abraham's hope was not the land. Abraham's hope was a city whose foundations were constructed by God Himself, which Abraham did receive. Abraham's hope was in a son Isaac, ultimately pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ, whom Abraham received. Brother, you say that Abraham received the city. Can you explain that? I would say that in Abraham, there's still awaiting fulfillment in that city being established in the here and now with Christ as the divine monarch ruling over the entire world. But then when Abraham died, he received the promise of eternity in the presence of God. So it's awaiting full, true fulfillment, lasting fulfillment in the second coming of Christ, but that he wasn't disappointed by these things. <clears throat> um, so you, you have the, the, the faith by which they lived. You have, think of Moses and his denial of all of the treasures of Egypt. Why? Because he found the treasures of Christ better. So you have Moses living in light of this promise. You have Moses living in his faith and you see the, the, the imitation of their faith. You see the outcome of their faith. Set that then over against idols. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 42. First look at Isaiah 42.17. And then we're going to go back and look at verses 11-16. through 16. <laughs> yes, the gavel is annoying me. Alright, 42.17. They are turned back and utterly put to shame who trust in carved idols, who say to metal images, you are our gods. So you have one example of faith. Faith in an idol. We see it all around us. You see um, people putting their hope, putting their trust in what they can accomplish. People putting their hope, putting their trust in what riches can bring. People putting their hope, putting their trust in this sort of escapism through drug usage. And you see all of these things utterly desecrated, utterly shamed at the end of the day. So you see one example of faith. Do not imitate that faith. Instead, look at it 11 through 16. Let the desert and its cities lift up their voice, the villages that Kadar inhabits. Let the inhabitants of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare His praise in the coastlands. The Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war. He stirs up His zeal. He cries out. He shouts aloud. He shows Himself mighty against His foes. For a long time I have held my peace. I have kept still and restrained myself. Now I will cry out like a woman in labor. I will gasp and pant. I will lay waste the mountains and hills and dry up all their vegetation. I will turn the rivers into islands and dry up the pools. And I will lead the blind in a way they do not know, in paths that they have not known. 
I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. These are the things I do, and I do not forsake them. Idols need people to carry them from place to place. Idols need people to bring food and set it before them. Food which ends up just rotting on the altar and is never consumed. But God, our God, the Creator of the universe, acts decisively on behalf of His people. He has drawn His people from the four corners of the world through the Gospel Proclamation. It says here that He will lay waste the mountains and the hills. He will dry up all of their vegetation. When we as the people of God cry out to God, we have faith, we have trust that our God will act decisively on our behalf, contrary to the idols. And so that is what is at stake. Remember your leaders, those who spoke the Word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. These men cast aside idolatry and pursued the holy God. The Pharisees were living still in this track of embedded idolatry known as the Jewish religion of that day. So the author of the Hebrews is setting side by side true faith, the true Old Testament faith, which is fulfilled in Christ and looking to Christ for salvation over against what is now the continued practice of Judaism, which he is sort of standing against true faith as idolatry. To return back to Judaism would be a departure from true faith, a departure from the living God. So don't do that, but imitate the faith of your leaders, the ones who spoke the Word to you. For us today, I think, we, we have the historical witness of Hebrews 11. But we today also have the historical witness of those who have come before us in the faith. You think of, of people in our congregation today, you think of people who you know who have walked away from the Lord even maybe after five or ten years of following Him. We need to see the faithful witness of people who have lived for generations, uh, families who have lived for generations. You, I think of the testimony of, of some of the martyrs of the early church that under strong persecution, under the threat of being burned alive or fried in a frying pan over a fire, you think of the things that these folks endured and that their faith bore up under the weight of that persecution because our God is faithful and because our God is alive. We need that testimony to strengthen our faith and to help us to walk in obedience to the Word of God. Tony? I think too we're seeing you know, an amplification of, of um, the biggest... Uh, evidence that God exists is how it changes people. That's right. And so, if it's going to do that, it needs to do that um, without flaw for a long time, so that you, people will feel like you can trust it. Like that's it, it's not like a pitch of, of trying to um, convince somebody, but it's just showing of how of how you need to look at what's really happening, how the Old Covenant was not going to just stay still forever. Mm -hmm. And that we would see this change in people going from idolatry to worshiping the God.
God. That's right. Instead of ourselves, instead of our actions, yeah. we look at God as being the one that provides the actions and, and the and whatever material possessions and, and all of that. Yeah. How discouraging would it be for our faith walk if the only example we had were of people who became Christians, lived the Christian life for five years, and then went back to idolatry? Mm-hmm. What test? What testimony? What precedent would we have to look at and say, God is faithful? If all we saw was rank hypocrisy, people who professed the goodness, the glory, the the beauty of Christ, and then lived like the rest of the world, desiring and possessing all of the idols of the world, if that was the only testimony that we had, what what sort of faith would we have? And what, what, I mean, what would the world think looking at that? Well, you profess Jesus, but you still want all of the same things I want, so why would I also want Jesus? None of that makes sense, brother. Interesting, in our day today, we look to all the great teachers all the time. I mean, well, maybe not, maybe it's because I'm just, you know, I, I mm. study and whatnot, but <clears throat> our heroes are not those, I mean, we shouldn't have to look back 2,000 years. Right. I, I mean, I think if God at that time gave those examples, then those examples are here today. That's right. And they're not necessarily like the John Pipers and the Tom Shriners and all other people. That's right. There's the woman that has suffered for years for whatever reason. There's yeah. that guy down the street that goes to church. You don't know Faithful, we know nothing about them. Yep. Whereas some of them, perhaps in some ways, ought to be heroes of our faith. That's right. That, And I think that's exactly right. And that's so... So you have remember... The call to remembrance, those leaders who spoke the word of God to you. We have the testimony of Hebrews 11. So we know in some sense he is talking about those who have passed away. But I think he's also talking about us to consider the life of current ministers of the word in our midst. And particularly, this should be the leaders of the church. Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And he sort of lays the same thing on the elders of the churches that he speaks. So those in the church who are more spiritually apt or who who have a greater facility in the Christian life, those who have been in the faith longer, who have tasted more of the grace of God, they should live lives worthy of imitation. They should live lives that are bearing out the, the goodness and the beauty of what we receive as the outcome of our faith. But there is some difficulty in that because until you persevere to the end, we're, we're still sort of waiting the outcome. And so there, there is the both and aspect of this. We need to see the testimony of those who have come before because we have seen a life lived in perseverance. And we need to see the testimony of those who are living presently pursuing the Lord. And we ourselves need to strive... To have imitatable faith, Ron. You know, I think one of the things that, uh, as as Americans, we are kind of myopic, mm. <laughs> looking at ourselves. When I, you know, I, I often think I would like to be under some of these pastors that are under severe persecution, mm-hmm. like in places like Iran and Iraq, and yeah. like that are being that have lost everything. They're in a refugee camp, and they're still faithful. You know, like I, I was reading something where a guy was trying, he, he was trying to get his ID card to be changed from Muslim to Christian. Mm-hmm. And you think of the what that's going to cost him. Yeah, you know, absolutely. So we get, we get I, I don't know, so mm. it's, uh, it's 
to me, I think we, we just don't take that into consideration. Yeah, I, that's good. That's very good. People who have significantly less education available to them than what we have here in America and are bearing up under vastly worse persecution than we are. Um, I, th- I think that's exactly right. So you have this call to remember, to consider, and to imitate. The grounding of this whole statement is verse 8. Verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. So why can we consider the faith of Abraham? Why can we consider the faith of Moses and of Abel and of, of Noah and Enoch? Why can we consider the faith of these men? Because the same God, the same Jesus Christ, who is upholding their faith, upholding them, helping them to live a righteous life, is the same Jesus Christ who is presently interceding for us today at the right hand of the Father. The ground of our faith, the object of our faith, is Jesus Christ Himself. The One who strengthens us on the walk, who holds us close to Himself, who who perseveres our faith, is Jesus Christ. This is the same Jesus we have access to. Is the same One who's upholding the church globally. The same Jesus that we have access to is the same One who upheld Peter while he was crucified upside down or the Apostle Paul when he was killed in Rome. The same Jesus Christ is present in our very midst through the power of the Holy Spirit. He is the ground of everything. Were it not for Christ, none of us... Not only would we have no reason to persevere, but we would have no one upholding us in our perseverance. And it it sort of works, I think, in two ways. So Jesus is both the object and the goal of our faith. So when you think of what is it that I have put my faith in, we as Christians have not just put our faith in some superstitious prayer or some words or some phrases. But we have heard the Gospel proclamation that Jesus Christ lived the perfect life, that Jesus Christ died the death that we could not live, and that Jesus Christ was raised again to new life. In that Gospel proclamation, we're not just coming face-to-face with words. We're coming face-to-face with the Word, Jesus Christ Himself. And that object that we grasp by faith is Jesus Christ Himself. We are brought into union with Him, He with us. So that He is the content. He is the object of our faith. But what is the thing that we also are looking forward to? It says, um, consider the outcome of their way of life. Imitate their faith. What was the motivator that drove Moses to put aside the riches of Egypt? Gary? The riches of Christ. The riches of Christ. That's right. So this Jesus that we grasp by faith is ultimately what we are pushing forward to. If you think about running the race, we're not just running the race to the finish line. We're running the race to Jesus Christ with arms wide open who we will receive and inherit for life everlasting. That is the the hope of our Christian faith. And so it's Jesus the same yesterday, today, and forever, who is the object of our faith, the one in whom we believe, but He is also the treasure, the prize, the possession. He is the one that we are ultimately hoping for as we run this race. The hope of Christian life is not just that we would have 
a good, happy life, a nice house, a few kids, and a car, and maybe a career. The hope of the Christian life is that all of this is worth nothing in comparison to the glory of the riches that we will inherit eternally in Christ. That's the hope of the Christian faith. And that was the hope of the Old Testament faith. That was the hope that that these Old Testament saints were looking forward to. And it's this Jesus that the author to the Hebrews sets over and against Old Testament religion and says, consider Jesus. Look at how much better Jesus is than all of this other stuff that you're looking at. Let's look at just a couple of these. Look at chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purifications for sin, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. You want to consider the goodness and the glory of angels? You want to, like a lot of our culture in in paganism, just sort of view angelolatry as as the, I'm going to pray to my guardian angel, my guardian angel watches out for me and protects me. The author of the Hebrews says, don't consider angels. Consider Jesus Christ, who through whom the whole world was created, in whom the very glory of God radiates. Consider Jesus who made purification for the sins of His people and has been made as much higher than angels as the name He has inherited is higher than theirs, which is the name above all names to whom all people will bow. Don't consider angels. Consider Jesus. Look at chapter 2, verses 5-9. through For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God He might taste death for everyone. He is greater. But consider Moses. So the temptation for these folks would have been this angelic host, but it also would have been a return to the Mosaic Law. He says in chapter 3, verses 1-6, through Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted more worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of the house has more glory than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. 
and we are His house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Do you want to return to the law? Do you want to return to the Levitical priesthood, the Levitical sacrifices? Consider Jesus, who in comparison to Moses is like a son over the slave. Consider Jesus, who this whole house constructed is pointing to. Consider Jesus, who not only is living in accordance and abiding by this law that Moses wrote, but is the very fulfillment of the law that Moses wrote. Don't go back to Moses. Look to Jesus. He says in chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, Since then we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What was the average Israelite's relationship to the throne of grace in the Old Testament? Non-existent. Non-existent. So you want to return to Moses? What, what is your relationship to God? What is your relationship to God's presence under the Old Covenant economy? Zip. If you even approach it, you'll be slaughtered. You look at, at Exodus 19 and 20. The Lord descends on Mount Sinai in a fire of holiness and says, let no one even touch this mountain lest he be stoned for his transgression against my holiness. Rough paraphrase. <laughs> but the, but to, to maintain the content... Jesus, as our great and faithful high priest, has torn down this dividing wall. He tore, he has torn down the separation between the holy place and the holy of holies. He has decimated that so that we now can approach the throne of grace. We can approach the throne of God without fear. You want to return to Moses? Consider Jesus. And we today as Americans need to consider you want to return to fame, wealth, money, pleasure? You want to return to those things? What's going to happen when you stand face to face with God on the day of judgment? Are you going to be able to whip out your, your checkbook and say, oh, how much is it going to cost for me to ransom my own soul? There's not enough money on earth for you to be able to do that. And even the money that is on earth is God's money anyway. So you want to return to, to idolatry? You want to walk away from this true faith in the, the true and living God in, in Christ? You want to walk away from this? Uh, Hebrews makes that equivalent to trampling underfoot the Son of God. That's right. That's right. So, so not, only is it, <laughs> not, not only is it like... I'm, I can't even put into words what I'm thinking. It's not just disrespectful... Mm-hmm. But for you to do that is an utter desecration of who Jesus Christ is. For you to behold the glory of the Son, for you to behold the the God-man who is seated at the right hand of the Father making intercession for His people, for you to behold the glory of Christ and say, ah, I'd rather have football. That that is horrendous. And that's the point that the author of the Hebrews is making. Yeah. And that's a good example, right? 
And it's one that we can easily see, especially when we don't enjoy football. We can see other people doing that, desecrating Christ by football. Right. But I think every single one of us has a junk drawer. Yes. I and I completely agree. Right? Football was the first That's thing. I'm suggesting you weren't saying that before. Yeah. It makes me think of the things in my life that, you know, okay, glory of Christ available <coughs> in a sense. Yep. There for my adoration. There for my for His exaltation. That's right. And I will choose B rather than A, knowing full well at that moment that A exists. That's and right. I think utter desecration is as good as anything I've ever heard to describe that cognitive, yeah. volitional yeah. thing that we do that chooses something else. That's right. That's right. And that that's what the author of the Hebrews is trying to set before you. He's trying to say, look at Christ. Look at Christ. Look at Him. Just Just open your eyes and look. And you want this? That's what he's doing the whole book. Look, you want that? Really? Wally. I'm amazed because uh, every Sunday morning on my way here, and I get to 171 off of Perrin Road, there's like not a car around. Mm. As I get closer to Southbridge, there's plenty of people on the golf course. Mm-hmm. And you know, I just think that where they should be, yeah. they have no understanding. Yep. The club and the ball, chasing a little ball around the course, to yep. me, is the most ludicrous thing. And I'm a Scot. Mm-hmm. That comes from Scotland. Yeah. But I'm going to tell you, I'd far rather be here worshiping yep. my Lord than worshiping a little ball. Yeah. Praise God. And let us, the next time we consider sinning, the next time we consider chasing an idol, hear the author of the Hebrews say, consider Christ. Just look at it. Just look at Him. It's the content of our faith. He is the object and the prize of our faith. And He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That becomes the the ground of the remembrance and consideration. But I think it is also the point of verse 9. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. So this is where the argument starts to get a little bit technical in terms of how do we understand what's going on here. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The testimony of Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The doctrines that speak of the truth of who Jesus is, that He was the God-man, that He is the great high priest, that He is the prophet, that He is the king, have been the same yesterday, today, and forever. To depart from a Sound Orthodox Christology is the same thing as pursuing golf over Christ. We cannot be led away by strange and diverse teachings. The temptation for the Hebrews was to depart from Christ back to the Old Testament. That's not the same temptation that we have today. The temptations that we might face today would, could potentially be the temptation of totally abandoning Christianity, It could be the temptation of mixing a true and biblical gospel with bits of social justice and with cultural transformation and tainting that gospel message in such a way that it's no longer about God's people being formed under Christ, but now about us transforming our communities. That's good, that's important, but that is not the gospel. The gospel is the proclamation of what Jesus Christ did on the cross to build the church, to save individuals from their sins so that they can have a right standing before God. That's the Gospel. Those individuals then, if they feel 
a desire to go out and transform culture is a separate issue. But cultural transformation is not the Gospel. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teaching. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. So here's where we start getting a little technical. What's he talking about here? I think he's talking about the cultic sacrifices in the Old Testament. Throughout the Old Testament, the priests would smoke their meat over the altar, and then they would get to take their meat off this altar smoker and go eat it back in their tent. Is that what Seth did the other night? That's exact. Yeah, minus the slaughtering part, but someday I hope to be a little more hand. No, I'm. But yes. So, but that. So that's the distinction, right? You have the priests offering these sacrifices and then partaking of the meat afterwards. That was a provision, a blessed provision of God for them, that they would have their food provided for them. That food goes into the body; it gives strength to the body. So the author of the Hebrews is setting that picture of the whole cultic system bound up in eating. He's setting that picture over against us being strengthened in the heart by the grace of God, which comes through Christ. That's going to be the the body of the argument. So then you look at verse 10. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. Who is the we? Believers, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent. Who are those who serve the tent? The Levitical priests. So we Christians have an altar that the Levitical priests are still worshiping. They're still sacrificing idols or or sacrificing meat on the altar. Our altar is an altar that they cannot come to. You must leave that altar to come to Christ. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. What he's getting at here is for you to be saved, you must totally release all of what you had before. For a priest to come to salvation meant that that priest would renounce Judaism, would renounce their priesthood, and would find themselves under the great high priest, Jesus Christ. He's he's saying this to make an argument to the the people to whom he's writing. We have the true altar. Do not return to the false altar. Tony. Would they take this as meaning that the place that they looked at as the most high probably would be the holy of the holies, which was in the tent, was not the holy of the holies anymore? That's right. The Spirit of God had departed when the, the curtain was rent from top to bottom. The way was opened so that everyone could enter. Now by grace through faith. Gary. Would it be okay to think of that altar that we have as being the Lord's table? No. No. Thank you. Yes. Um. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't I don't I've I've thought about this. I don't think so. Um I think if he had communion in mind, it would be somewhere else in the letter. But communion never shows up anywhere else. So I think he's intentionally setting I, I think what he has in mind here is the the real altar at which Christ is serving and praying right now in heaven. So the I you have the shadow and the reality. I don't think he's pointing to the communion I wasn't table. Thinking of the Lord's Supper. Mm-hmm. I think of the Lord's table as being the broad fellowship of the believing community. That could be. Yes. 
Okay, yes, Todd. Yeah, I'm just thinking that this really coincides with when the Lord said, "Destroy this temple, and I will rebuild it in three days." And what was he talking about? He's talking about his body. Christ replaced the temple because all of the temple was pointing to Christ. All of the Levitical priesthood, the sacrifices that they offered day after day after day, was pointing to the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ. The entire office of the Levitical priesthood is pointing to the glory of Christ's high priestly office. When Jesus ascended and was seated on the throne in the true temple, none of this mattered. All of it is, is cast aside. So we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. Verse 11, For the body of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through His own blood. Therefore, let us go to Him outside the camp and bear the reproach He endured. So the bodies of the animals. What sacrifice does anybody know is particularly in view here? There was one day that the priests were not allowed to eat, but the bodies had to be taken outside and burned. Yeah, Day of Atonement. Exactly right. So the Day of Atonement is what's at view here. The bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place. So the animals are slaughtered. The blood is brought into the holy place, sprinkled. And then the priest must take the body of those animals outside of the camp for them to be burned. Demonstrating that the priests themselves were not... There, there was something different going on here. The priests were not allowed to imbibe this because there had been a transfer of the sins of the people onto these animals and the carcass just needed to be burned in shame and infamy representing the reprehensible nature of the sin of the people. And so now, in the same way, we as Christians have the blood of Christ sprinkled on us. And we are to go to Him outside of the camp. The picture is, is in a sense, that you are leaving all of this Judaistic religion behind and you are moving to Christ outside of the camp. Something new is going on here. In the same way, the priest sprinkled blood and left the tent to go to or to go and burn the animals outside of the camp, so too we, in our movement from death to life, in our movement from unbelief to belief, we leave the tent behind. And so he's making this point drawn from his exegesis of the Day of Atonement. That the, the carcasses were taken outside of the camp, so Christ was taken outside of the camp. We must leave the camp to go to Christ. But this is not a return to the camp. This is a staying outside of the camp, which is the significance and the difference of what is going on with Jesus. But his point is is that this whole Day of Atonement was set up to point us to what was going to be coming in Jesus. The whole thing was, was built to show you that when true atonement is made, something different is going to be going on. It's not like the rest of the sacrifices. And so when Christ took upon Himself the sins of His people, when His blood was shed, when He was taken outside of the camp and His body was utterly destroyed, we 
at that point leave the camp to identify with Christ, to identify with the true forgiveness of sins, and we do not return to the camp. That's the point he's making. So Jesus also offered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. So we leave the camp. We bear the same, the, the same shame, the same reproach that Christ himself endured outside the camp. And we do so knowing that these Jews would have known that what we're leaving behind is all of our tradition. We're leaving behind all of our family. We're leaving behind our identity as the Jewish people to be newly identified under the Lordship of Christ. And it's the same thing for us today. When we are called from death into life, we leave behind family. We leave behind friends. We leave behind all of the career identification and all of those things that we had been worshiping ourselves with. We leave that all behind so that we can go outside of the camp to Jesus Christ to take on a new identity, to take on a new identification. Our primary identifier now is no longer American for those from America. Our primary identification is no longer Judaism. Our primary identification is no longer anything other than Jesus Christ and Him crucified for sinners. And in so doing, we bear the reproach that He endured. Mm -hmm. So you think of the the shame, the the aspersion cast upon Christ. Mm -hmm. You think of how Jesus had to forsake His whole family and they all thought He was nuts. You think of all that Jesus had to endure that is promised to us who leave the camp to bear that reproach. But why do we do it? Verse 14. For we have no lasting city. Those who leave the camp to go to Christ are in a sense identity-less in this world. We are alien people. We are foreigners wherever we are. Because we seek a city that is to come. We're like... um, we're like a foreign people in a country waiting for our homeland to invade and establish its rule and reign within that country. We have been promised that Christ will return, that Christ will establish His kingdom in the here and now. We have been promised those things, and that ultimately is what we are waiting for. That's why we live by faith in hope for a city that is to come. And we do not put our hope in the present city in which we Live. Verse 15, Through Him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. And so we go outside of the city. One of the main themes through the book of Hebrews is this idea of the sort of priesthood of all believers. The Levitical priests have been done, done away with. Christ is the great high priest. In Christ, we now are living out a sort of new priesthood. We're the ones who are offering up a sacrifice of praise to God, which is the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. It's no longer through slaughtered animals that God is is praised or that God is pleased, but it's now through humility. It's now through a humble heart and the profession of the glory of Jesus Christ on the lips of His people. Those are now the sacrifices of praise that are offered to God. That then is also 
connected to doing good. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. That is, those those priests, us, we offer a sacrifice of praise to God and we do good. We share with one another. We walk alongside one another. I think he's got a, a very community focus here in terms of, of how we as a church live and exist together. That we don't live in strife with one another. That we don't live in dissension with one another. That we don't withhold from those in our midst if we can help or, or strengthen them in times of need. That we do good to one another, I think is what the author of the Hebrews has in mind. That we would share what we have, what the Lord has, been, has given us. Because at the end of the day, we as, as ambassadors of this king recognize that anything that we have is coming from the capital. Anything that we have has been given to us by the divine, divine monarch. Ultimately, not so that we're going to benefit from it, but so that he can build his kingdom. He's not looking to benefit us. He is looking to strengthen and to further his agenda in whatever country he has planted his people. So do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Again, we then are the priests now offering sacrifice, now offering ourselves as sacrifice to our living Savior, our living and risen Savior. So don't return to Judaism. Don't return to whatever idol you were saved from. But look to Christ. Consider Christ. Consider His glory. Consider His magnificence. Consider the treasure of the possession that we have in Him. And live your lives in accordance with that. Any questions? No? Pat, be close to prayer. Father, I ask that you would help us to see truly that we are dead to sin so that we stop worshiping the dead thing. Mm. And to um, knowing that and really having that take hold of us, our identity being shaped by the crucified and risen Messiah, Jesus, in whose image we're constantly being conformed. Help us truly to see that ourselves in ourselves for the sake of your kingdom be glorified among us what we say what we what we do what we look at uh, help us God Holy Spirit not to trade lesser valuable things for Christ and we seek Amen, Amen. Thanks Ellen.